Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Keys for SLPs. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Dr. Machine Namazi is a tenured and salaried professor and the director of School for Communication Disorders and Deafness at Kane University. She received a grant from the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. Dr. Joanne Kasha is also a faculty member at Kane University. She received a grant from NJACE and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. We are honored to welcome two guests today, Dr. Joanne Kasha and Dr. Mashid Namazi. Dr. Joanne Kasha, CCC, SLP, is a faculty member at Keene University in Union, New Jersey. Dr. Kasha's clinical experience has focused on pediatric language, specifically autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Kasha is the co-coordinator of the MA and SLP program at Kane, as well as the coordinator of the new NeuroAlly Specialization Program. Her research experience has explored executive function skills and empathy in ASD. She is actively involved in professional service as a Council of Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Disorders board member and a Council on Academic Accreditation site visitor. Dr. Mashi Namazi, CCC SLP, is faculty and executive director of the School of Communication and Deafness at Kane University. Dr. Namazi is the co-coordinator of the NeuroAllies programs program at Kane University. She is an ASHA certified multilingual speech language pathologist with over 26 years of experience in various clinical settings as a clinician and a clinical supervisor. She is fluent in Farsi, French, English, and Spanish. Dr. Namazi teaches doctoral masters and undergraduate courses and conducts research in multilingual and multicultural aspects of speech, language, and communication development and disorders, as well as interprofessional practice and autism. She is the recipient of numerous awards, grants, and scholarships, and has published multiple peer-reviewed articles. She has presented her work in Europe, Canada, and the United States. Welcome, Dr. Namazi and Dr. Kasha. We are so happy to have you both here today to talk about the NeuroAllies program at Keene University. It's so exciting to hear about this unique program and specialization. Thank you so much for having us. How did the concept for the program develop? Oh my goodness. It was a very gradual process, but it started with uh, me receiving an email notification from a New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, and they were requesting proposals for programs that would essentially provide education to future professionals so they could be you know, students in any of the allied health professions, including speech language pathology. I, you know, ran into Joanne's office. I said, okay, 
so I really want us to do this. Are you on board? She says, sure. And so we kind of just sat down and, you know, we conversations, we talked and it kind of just came very gradually. So we wrote the proposal, we submitted it. We're very excited when we were selected. And then we really had to sit down and really think about, okay, the nuts and bolts of the program. As we started you know, reading, talking to each other more and more. Eventually, we kind of, we were led to neurodiversity. We decided it would be wonderful for students coming into our master's program to have this option of learning about how to work with autistic individuals from a neurodiversity framework and that it would give them this alternative perspective that they don't really hear about because so many of them, you know, come in having worked as behavior therapists and other kinds of approaches. But this is one that, you know, they really didn't know about. Yeah, we kind of found that, you know, in conversations with our students, that they really only knew about using behavior modification to work with children with autism. And we kind of felt like that was a conversation that we needed to have with our students, that there are alternatives. And we thought this would be a great opportunity to introduce a concept that both Mashid and I had incorporated into our own practice. And now to be able to share it with our students on a platform like this, we thought was, you know, it was just a great opportunity. Excellent. So you applied for the grant and you received it. And that was Two years ago, when you you had your first cohort? Yeah, we accepted uh, our first cohort in 2019, fall 2019. No, no, no fall 2020. Because I was like, wait, but it was the <laughs> pandemic. And then I remembered. Okay, right. Yes. So it was actually fall 2020. I'm sorry. We received notification of the award in 2019. And then we took sort of that year to develop the program. Yeah. And then we accepted the first cohort in the fall of 2020. Okay. I just, out of curiosity, last year, the fall of 2020, were your students online or in person? Yeah, we were doing fully synchronous, what we call synchronous remote classes. So basically, you know, using either Zoom or Google Meet or Blackboard Collaborate, you know, if we had a, we were scheduled to teach a Monday 930 class, we just went on Zoom, taught the Monday 930 class. So it was live and synchronous, but yes, we were fully remote. Okay. Okay. And now this year, are you in person? Yes. Now we're fully in person. Yes. Okay. Okay. But we still hold the seminars which we can talk about later remotely, but the classes okay. are in Yes. Okay. So thank you for that clarification. So you are, you have just welcomed your second cohort. So you're in your second year of the actual program. Okay. So tell us a little bit about how the program, well, first of all, how would someone apply to the program? So in order to apply to the Neuro Allies program, you must first be accepted into the master's program in, in SLP. So anyone who would be interested in the Neuro Allies program would have to apply to Kane University to the master's in SLP program and be accepted into that program. Once we have our two cohorts, we accept a full cohort of students in the summer and then another in the fall. So once we have our two cohorts in place, then we put notification out to all of those students that they can then apply to to the Neuro Allies program. So it's open to our current SLP master's students. Okay. And how many students do you have in the Neuro Allies program? Well, in each cohort? We take 16 per year. So last year was our first cohort of 16. And then this year we took another 16. Last year's cohort is still here because it's a two, our master's program is two years. So at any given time, we'll have 32 students in the Neuro Allies program. Okay, excellent. That helps us understand the logistics. And now tell us a little bit about what the program actually is. So in our master's program, we have a menu of one and a half credit electives, which is one of the things that makes our program really special. So students have the option of taking eight, and I always like have to stop and think about the number, but they have to take eight one and a half credit 
electives. And so they they choose from a whole you know menu of courses. And so for us, that was an opportunity that when Joanne and I sat down to create the program, we thought, you know what, we have these electives. Let's see if we can somehow use that to create this program so that we're not adding additional credits for the specialization. So what we decided to do is take four of those one and a half, so a half of the mm-hmm. one and a half credit electives and turn them into autism specific classes. Two of them already existed in our program. So we all, we always had two one and a half credit electives in autism that students could take. So essentially what we did is they had to then if they chose the newer allies program, they had to take those two classes. Then we created two additional one and a half credit elective specifically for the Neuro Allies program. So one of them is the neuroscience of autism, which Dr. Gertner teaches. And the and he's actually teaching that for the first time this semester. So we're really excited to so interesting. speak with him about how that's going. I wish I could I had the time to be a fly on the wall for that. Exactly. Class. And then the fourth one they take in the spring of 2022, and that one is interprofessional practice and autism. And we are going to be doing a co-teaching model with that class because it's interprofessional. So we have a doctor of psychology professor who specializes in autism, who will co-teach that class either with one of us and Dr. Gertner, or he and Dr. Gertner, or some combination. And we're hoping to have, we will be having some of the Doctor of Psychology students in the same classroom with our MA SLP students. So the neuroscience class and the interprofessional class, they take in their second year. And then the two autism classes, they take in their first year. So that takes care of six credits because it's a 12-credit program. And then the other six credits is basically research that they do in autism. So again, we've always had a two-semester research sequence in the master's program. They take one of the courses in the fall and the other course in the spring. And essentially the students have, you know, they basically pursue a research topic from beginning to end, write an IRB proposal, they write up, you know, they do the research, they write up the manuscript and present at a couple of different venues. So in the case of the Neuro Allies, we have two sections. Joanne teaches one, I teach the other. And in fact, we're co-teaching them. So our second year NeuroAlly students are now doing their research. But for them, the research has to be in autism. And in addition to that, we also have our NeuroAlly students have to do at least one clinical rotation or clinical experience with autistic clients. So by the time they come out of the program, they have academic, clinical, and research in the area of autism. And the fall semester starts with there's no there's no courses they have to register for, but it starts with that seminar that I mentioned earlier. We select a book that is neurodiversity friendly and we read that book together and we meet once a month and just have conversations around that book. We throw some questions at them. We ask them to, you know, tell us what, you know, their thoughts on what they read. And then at the completion of each seminar, we send a Google form to them that basically has a couple of writing prompts. So the prompts are, I used to think, I learned, I wonder. And so they complete that after each monthly seminar. So last semester, in the fall semester, the first cohort, we read Neurotribes by Steve Silberman. And this semester, we're reading uh, Uniquely Human by Barry Present. And do you have some of those testimonials to share with us? You want to read some of them? Sure. Um, I used to think I learned, I wonder. So these are just two quotes from our students that were, these are, this is the first cohort of students that was admitted last year in the fall of 2020. One student said, I used to not fully understand the depth to which autistic individuals were stigmatized. I did not know that the view on autism in society is essentially a constructed perspective from neurotypical individuals. And another student said, 
ASD is as much a part of a person's identity as race or sexual orientation. It is not something that can or should be fixed, but something that should be embraced and nurtured. I've learned to think about behaviors as communicative acts rather than something that must be extinguished. That is her last sentence, instead of behaviors that should be extinguished. So important for us all to think of this differently. Yes, absolutely. Yes, because, you know, all communicate, all behavior ultimately for us is communication. And that's really how we try to, what we try to impart to our students to really Mm -hmm. listen and look with their eyes and ears at the behaviors and try ask why and try to understand what it is the person is trying to communicate. The other quotes, um, you know, one student said, I used to think that using the term autistic to describe a person on the autism spectrum was outdated and potentially insensitive. I have always learned that we should put the person before the disorder. I like using this as a rule of thumb as it ensures that we are not replacing their identity with their diagnosis. And, you know, one of the things she's curious about is because this is this is a student who this was their first reflection. So it was on September 29th of 2020. So we were at they were right at the beginning of their master's program, as well as the NeuroAllies specialization. And so she says, I'm curious to see how the concept of neurodiversity will continue to develop and branch out into schools and clinics around the world. I think that children's books and normalizing inclusive education is a start, but I'd like to see what else we can do. And part of what you have mentioned is that person first language or diagnosis first. And can you talk a little bit about that? that you really get leave it up to the individual to decide how they want to be identified. Yeah. So, I mean, and it, it's actually, interestingly, that always becomes the first conversation. So both in the first seminar last year and the first one this year, that really was the first conversation because for our students, they have always, and I was trained that way. I know Joanne was trained that way. We have to use person first language. And so, I was trained that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, they're so confused by that initially, but this is what we were taught. So I don't know how this works. So do we now just always say autistic? Do we put it in a report that way? When we give a presentation, what do we do? So they have all these really great questions. And so, you know, essentially, you know, it came down to, well, what does the person want to be called? How do they want to, you know, we've all been given a name at birth, right? And some people choose not to use the name they were given at birth, right? They short abbreviate it, they replace it, you know, so how does that person want you to call them? Do they want, you know, ask them, ask their caregivers, find out what their preference is. The reason why this has become such a conversation to have is that the number of autistic adults that are now speaking out and saying, this is what we want. We want to be called autistic. We don't want to be called a person with autism because Autism is part of who we are. It's part of our identity. It's not just something that we carry around with us, but it's it's who we are. So it is as much a part of them as any other identifier that they would use to to talk about their race or their culture or their, you know, like we said, their sexual orientation, their gender, like it's just part of who they are. And by saying a person with makes it seem as though it's ancillary, like it's something that they have next to them, but it's not actually part of them. So that conversation really started by autistic adults saying, you know, we want to be called autistic. We don't want to be called a person with autism. And just for clarification, though, that is still on an individual basis. So some adults... Yeah. So you shouldn't assume either way. You shouldn't assume that they want to be called a person with autism, or you should not assume that they sh- they want to be called an autistic person. It's an individual decision, and you should ask each person. 
That's what we advise our students, that it's always best just with anything else. I mean, like we do that even in our classes with our students at the beginning of the semester. Does anyone, you know, if you prefer to be called by a different name than what we have in the roster, if you be, if you prefer to use a different pronoun, like, you know, that's just kind of accepted now that, that you know, you, you find out the preference of the person and this is no different. So that's what we're explaining to students that if possible, that they should find out from their client what their preference is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's also good to note that in our training, it was very well-meaning when we were told, you know, say person, a person with autism, but we were told that by, for the most part, by a neurotypical person. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So we all have the best intentions, but we, yeah. that's why lifelong, lifelong learning is so important. And that's why we're here today, right? Yeah, Exactly. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the research directions that the students are going in and, and has the research really changed because of the NeuroAllies program? I mean, I would, I would think that prior to this program, you certainly had students doing research in autism. Yeah, we did. We had a lot of mm-hmm. students interested in doing research in autism, but absolutely this has changed. This program has changed the topics that our students are pursuing in research. We right now have 16 students that are in the research sequence and they're in the first semester of mm-hmm. that research sequence, so they're developing their topics. They have kind of put themselves into four groups and they're working on four different topics. Really interesting topics, I think. One group is looking at like a historical perspective of goals and objectives Mm -hmm. that have been included in either treatment plans or IEPs or even IEP computer programs, like programs that generate IEP goals and looking through the goals to their kind of data mining to see which goals are considered to be ableist goals or or which goals encourage masking Mm -hmm. of autistic characteristics rather than strength-based goals. So we have a group that's focusing on that, which is really interesting. Now, I know we talked about both the ableist perspective and masking in our previous episode, but we will have some listeners who will only listen to this episode and not that one. So do you mind just touching upon those points a little bit? I just want to start that conversation with something a student said in one of her reflections that she learned because it relates to that. And then I'll defer to Joanne to talk more about masking. So after one of our seminars, this is what she, the writing prompt I learned, what she wrote. I learned that social skills training does more harm than good. Many people with autism use what they learned in social skills training to mask their autistic traits. Masking or social camouflaging can lead to depression. Females are known to mask their autistic traits more than males do. Rather than using social skills training as a method to help people with autism, we should be using perspective taking. This method equally teaches people with autism and neurotypical people how to communicate with one another. I also learned that people with autism are actually extremely empathetic to the point where they can shut down because it causes an overload of emotions. I also learned that echolalia is something that should not be extinguished, but rather it should be used to expand more language. One statement that was made in the webinar that really stuck with me was when Julie said, nothing about us without us. Say that again, nothing about us without us. That is a quote that is used by autistic adults. So their feeling is they want to be included in the planning, the research, the the conversations, the dialogue about autism. So their quote is nothing about us without us. So we've been teaching that to our students too. So telling. How young can we apply that? that quote and that that philosophy. So, I mean, would you say at what age? I know, you know, in the early years, you're applying that to the caregivers, right? So you're not making up goals without the caregivers. But at, at what age? And I know it varies from individual to individual. Yeah, that's but, what I was just going to say. I think that's such a hard question because it's mm-hmm. it's so variable depending on the individual. I don't know that there's any strict rule of thumb on that, but I would say as early as you can, that you can start to incorporate their perspectives and their needs, their wants, what's important to them. I would do that as soon as I could. Mm -hmm. It's really just a general paradigm shift. 
Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So to, just to go back to masking and ableism, that I think that quote from the student kind of sums up masking. I think you kind of get an idea of what masking is, which is basically anything that the autistic person is told to do or not do in order to hide or camouflage their autism. So for example, if a child flaps their hands, you know, it's often looked at as, you know, that's a a behavior that needs to be extinguished. Like that's not typical. We don't, we don't go around flapping our hands. You have to have quiet hands, right? Mm -hmm. Quiet hands. How many times have we heard that term? Well, which doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Hands aren't noisy. (laughs) But, um, But the neurodiversity approach is, you know what, if the child's flapping his hands, then perhaps he needs to flap his hands to self-regulate. Perhaps there's a reason why he's flapping his hands. It's helping him cope. It could be a coping mechanism of some kind. And by extinguishing that behavior, by telling him he can't flap his hands, we could be doing more harm to him because now that coping mechanism that he's using is being taken away. So he's going to have to learn to cope in a different way. And that could actually just create another behavior that then is going to try to be extinguished. So it's kind of this cycle where if we decide to not mask those behaviors, but instead approach those behaviors as communicative attempts, we'll begin to understand the client better. And the term ableism or ableist comes from the idea that a neurotypical person is able, quote, able to to make the decisions or to do the things or to say the things, behave in a certain way that is the correct way and that that person is then deciding for the autistic person the way that they need to act and behave and speak. If I'm an ableist therapist, then I'm going to say, I know what's appropriate. I know what's correct. And I'm going to tell you how to do those things so that you look appropriate and you look and act correct in this situation. That's an ableist approach. And then, you know, I think what one of the things our, one of our students says that she learned really nicely sums up sort of the opposite of that, like more the neurodiversity approach. She says, I learned that the way in which society defines and stigmatizes autism is actually a reflection of the ways in which we approach autism. If we do not provide the necessary resources to these individuals, they may have a difficult time in the quote unquote normal world that neurotypicals created. If we provided strategies and resources necessary to these individuals, we could move forward in a progressive way and find the balance between a world that understands both neurotypical individuals and neurodivergent individuals. Okay. So what would some of those strategies be from a neurodivergent perspective versus, so if, if we don't, we no longer want to make ableist goals that are created by the therapist with the best intentions for the child, but again, our intentions, not their intentions, what would a different neurodiverse strategy be? Let's take a behavior as an example. So maybe like topic maintenance. Okay, so from an ableist perspective, we will say, let's take a young adult, since we're kind of talking about young adults, we'll take an an 18-year-old young adult who is going to college and has topic maintenance is is a challenge for him. And so a therapist would say, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to focus on maintaining the topic for however many minutes or however they make their measurable goal. I think the first question that I would want to know is Mm -hmm. who came up with that goal? The topic maintenance was important. Did the therapist come up with that goal or did the 18 year old come up with the goal that topic maintenance was important? And if it was the therapist that came up with that goal, then maybe that isn't so important to the 18 year old. So that would be my first step is who's deciding on what's important for this person. Okay, let's say the client did not come up with the goal. However, during a college lecture, the professor who is, and let's say it's it's not in, we're not in communication sciences and disorders. Let's say it's a history professor. So the history professor, she has an expectation that she will lecture, people will listen and ask questions related to the topic. And this person wants to go, off topic significantly. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I would, <laughs> we're both ready like, to say. So the first thing I would say is rather than develop a goal and rather say, okay, your professor wants you to do this this way. So therefore we're going to do this goal and we're going to work on topic maintenance. I think that's kind of jumping the gun. I think that there needs to be a conversation and, and perspective taking needs to be something that's addressed. I think that's number one. I think that this 18 year old client needs to understand why the professor is wanting this exchange to happen. And after understanding that, if the the 18-year-old then says, oh, okay, I guess that is something that I should learn to do because I do want to take part in this class. I do want to do well in this class. I do want to have those exchanges and, and, and learn this information. Then that becomes an intrinsic motivator to him. And so that is a key component here is that it's intrinsic and not extrinsic. It's not me saying or the therapist saying, you must hold this conversational topic for five exchanges. And if you do, then you will get this reward. That's extrinsic and it's not going to have the impact on the client in the same way. That's my first thought. I know Dr. Yeah. is ready to jump right in. Here. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Honestly, what I was going to kind of talk about is to let the interest of the person guide the topics of conversation. Again, you know, and this came up in the previous episode where I was saying that I choose the people I talk to. And when we make friends and when we talk to the people we talk with, the people we really have like lengthy conversations with, there are things that you know, we have in common. There are interests that we share. There's a presupposition pool that, you know, is available to both of us. And so I think, you know, often we, we decide, well, this is the topic and they have to maintain it for 10 minutes. Well, but that again is not a functional naturalistic way that we have conversations, right? The newest account of autism is this interest-based account, which I find intriguing. And I'm just in my baby's toddler stages of learning about it. And I really want to find time to do more reading about it, but it's called monotropism. We all have our interests. We all have things that pull us in a direction or another. We choose different majors in college. We have different hobbies. So there are things that pull our interests. Now, in the case of autistic individuals, monotropism states that there is a tendency for these interests to pull autistic individuals more strongly. So instead of talking about autistic individuals as having these obsessions or they can't shift to a topic or maintain a topic of whatever XYZ the topic is, perhaps they're not interested in that topic. Perhaps they don't really know much about it because they're not interested in it. And so I think, uh, you know, the, the monotropism basically rests on the model of the mind as an interest system. So we're all interested in different things. Our interests direct our attention. Different interests are sort of more emphasized and highlighted at different times. But what happens in a monotropic mind, which is what this account of autism states, and actually there are a lot of autistic individuals, adults who are embracing this account as being a very accurate description of autism, there are fewer interests can be aroused at any one time. So that ability to sort of like for the neurotypical mind to often pay attention to a lot at the same time is just in a neurodivergent mind is not necessarily the same. They have fewer interests, but they're much more focused and more in depth. They might know more about each of those and they can, there's only a certain number that can be aroused at any time. And so that tends to then perhaps that's what's leading to their ability to not be able to shift to that topic immediately and focus on that. It's important to think also, like we teach every day, we teach classes every day, and there are students in the class who are not raising their hand and yes. who are not comfortable mm -hmm. speaking out loud in class and who are not having discussions. And these are neurotypical students as far as we know, and we don't think anything of that. That's fine. But because this student has this diagnosis or mm -hmm. this label of autism, all of a sudden we have to fix them. Mm -hmm. But the other students that are sitting in the class that are not raising their hand and not having these conversational exchanges of five or more exchanges, well, that's fine because they're just choosing not to, <laughs> right? So 
So we have this different expectation almost of, oh, we, we have to fix this person and bring them up to this level that we've decided is the level they should be at. But quite honestly, there are plenty of their peers that are not doing the same thing. So I think looking, and we've said this you know before, mm-hmm. that we're all different. We all have our own preferences when it comes to these things and, and to be respectful of that. The other piece to this is we talk about perspective taking, but if I'm only speaking with the autistic student about the perspective of the professor Mm -hmm. and the professor is never learning the perspective of the student, then we're, then there's a, there's a, a disconnect there too, right? Like this perspective taking has to happen on both, on both ends. This conversation reminds me in my 20s when I lived in Vancouver, Canada, I met this young gentleman through a family friend who I later discovered, I later realized that he was autistic. And he sort of sort of befriended me and my family because of the fact that he was really interested in musical instruments that were not sort of typical that they came from different countries and different parts of the world, these very sort of in that Canadian context, Vancouver context, like you wouldn't walk into a music store and see them. And, you know, one time we went over to his home and there were, he had, oh, I want to say more than 40 or 50 of the most obscure instruments hanging, you know, on his walls and on, on his floors. And he could play every single one of them. And he had taught it to himself. And so he befriended my family because he's like, oh, these, you know, I really want more, you know, Persian instruments and Middle Eastern instruments. And can you introduce me to them or tell me where to buy them? And so, you know, we kind of went and sat in a coffee shop once and like, okay, let's, you know, let's go have a cup of coffee. And there was nothing for us to talk about. So unless I led the conversation, right, and he responded, but it didn't go anywhere. But if we talked about music and, you know, instruments and we talked about he could have a very, you know, easy conversation that, you know, where he even looked at me sometimes and maintained topic and took turns appropriately and all of that. So an ableist perspective would say, oh, we need to teach him to talk about other topics. But a neurodiverse perspective would say, it's okay. He can talk and take turns appropriately. And he, from a strength-based perspective, he's incredibly strong in his knowledge and ability to play these instruments. And that's okay. We don't need to teach him how to talk about other topics in that coffee shop unless he wanted to. Correct. Right. And if someone said to me, I watched it, I said, no, you, now you have to talk about, I don't know, computer programming and all the ins and outs. Of, I'd be like, my eyes oh. start to glaze over. I, I hear you. Walk out of the room. Do you know what I mean? So none of us want to talk about the things that we don't want to talk about that we're not interested in. So, and another thing you mentioned in the previous episode was looking at the long-term approach and long-term goals. And from a strengths-based perspective, what are the long-term goals? So you have a five-year-old child who was just diagnosed with autism. What is your goal for that child at 20? And what are his interests at five that might lead to a career at 20? And does he need to he doesn't really need the to the all of the steps of the ableist perspective in those years in between. Yes, yeah. So I mean, I mean, of course, you know, in school, kids have to be able to take the subjects they have to take. I mean, my daughter complains about the subject she doesn't like and wishes she could take only the subjects she likes. You know, like we all have those things. We major, you know, we go into a major in college and well, why do I have to take these other courses that I'm not interested in? So, of course, we kind of have to do those things in life. But the idea being that if you focus and develop focus on those strengths as opposed to so the child who loves to play with trains and knows everything about trains and can just go on and on and and then we say well no we have to take all the trains away put them in the closet and not let that child ever ever play with a train again because they have to be able to do all kinds of things as opposed to let's build the things that they have to learn the parents want their child to learn the person themselves wants to learn Let's build conversations, all kinds of conversations around 
trains, language goals around trains. Perhaps one day they will end up being, I don't know, a train engineer. <laughs> you know, yeah, that that's kind of what the strength based approach is. So the trains become part of the strategy to lead to other skills if that child and that family wants those other skills versus something that's put away because they need to focus on the other skills or versus the reward for learning the other skills. Mm -hmm. If, you know, we think about it for ourselves, like, and we think about the things that we enjoy the most, and we think if someone took those things away from us, would that be something to motivate us to want to do more or, or, or would we be so frustrated, upset that, that it would, Mm -hmm. prevent us from doing more, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever that thing is that gets you through your day, if that's a cup of coffee, if that's for me, it's uh, it's tea, right? I'm a tea drinker. I drink tea all day. If someone said to me, you can't have tea all day because you drink too much tea, you have to drink other things. And, you know, we'll give you the tea back at the end of the week after you've earned it. <laughs> well, that's going to ruin my week. And that's going to make me not perform as well all week as I would if I just was able to drink my tea. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what we're doing when we take away the trains. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of topic maintenance, we had started talking about some of the research topics. <laughs> How we just led you to topics we wanted you to we wanted to talk about. Well, we can talk about what other topics do you want to talk about? Please, please. We don't have to go back to the research. I'm just a little fascinated because I I think that. Go ahead, no worries. No, no, no. Let's be. We can come back to research at the end. What? Tell us what else you would like people to know about the neuro allies. We cleverly led you away from the topic. <laughs> We're happy to talk about the research because that's yeah. fun for us to talk about. Yeah. Oh, so I I kind of filled you in on the one project. And then some of the other projects that they're doing, we have one group that is looking at the parent perspective of neurodiversity and autism, looking at some of the, the terminology and some of the perspectives on autism from a cultural perspective. So they're looking at how parents from different cultures are viewing the neurodiversity approach compared to some other tr more traditional approaches of autism. And then we have a group that is looking at the, pronoun the pronouns group. group. Yes, yeah. they're looking at pronouns. Because they, they started off sort of being interested in, because as, you know, SLPs in training, we learned that, you know, autistic individuals can't use pronouns correctly. However, neither can kids with DLD, neither can, there's many other, you know, pr pronouns are quite complex because of the fact that so much of it depends on being able to sort of shift the perspective because I can be at any moment an I, a you, a me, a we, a they, so depending on who's talking, you know, whether I'm a direct object or a subject or whether I'm talking about something that belongs to me. So they're very, they're actually very, very complex. And so they were really interested in this. And I, we sort of talked to them about kind of opening up their perspective a little bit to really actually looking at, well, how do we even, are we using evidence-based approaches to teaching pronouns? How do we teach pronouns? What's the research out there? And so we shared with them a current article on an evidence-based approach to teaching pronouns. And so now they're really interested in finding out how speech-language pathologists teach pronouns to not just autistic kids, but to all kids. They were talking about this theory of mind perspective that actually among the autism community has fallen out of favor that, you know, and the double empathy problem is kind of replacing it to some extent. Can you tell us, I know you talked about it previously, but in the last episode, what double empathy means? What double empathy means is that in terms of two individuals communicating with each other, if you were to take two individuals with autism and put them together, they would be able to interact and communicate with each other pretty well. Just as if you were to take two individuals who were neurotypical and put them together, they would be able to communicate and interact pretty well. The breakdown happens when you take a neurodiverse 
individual and a neurotypical individual and you put them together because their perspectives are different and because they're possibly the way they're processing and sharing information is different. That's when there becomes a breakdown in communication. So there is no problem when two autistic people are together communicating. There's no problem when two neurotypical people are together communicating, Mm. but there is a problem sometimes when a neurotypical and a neurodiverse person together are communicating. That's in essence, the double empathy problem. You have two different types of empathy. And when you take one person from each of those and put them Mm -hmm. together, then there's a breakdown. So that is, so what Dr. Mazi saying is that this kind of new way of looking at it is this double empathy is sort of replacing that theory of mind idea that has been around for a while that autistic individuals don't have theory of mind and that's why they're not able to interact or 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 show empathy in the same way that neurotypicals individuals do but really what we're finding is it's really this double empathy problem Okay. And then bringing that back to how does that relate to pronouns? So the students were really looking at it in terms of theory of mind, because a lot of the explanations for pronoun use difficulties in autistic children has been around, well, they can't take perspective. Well, but neither can kids with DLD who you know, if that's the explanation. And the thing is, a theory has to explain the same, be able to explain the same problem in different people. So you can't say, well, this theory explains pronoun use in these people. And this other theory explains pronoun use difficulties in this other population and so on. So in kids with developmental language disorder make similar errors. Second language speakers make similar errors. Pronouns are just tough to learn. So essentially they sort of were like, well, let's abandon the, and then as we talked about double empathy as well they kind of abandoned this idea of theory of mind perhaps as an explanation but it became more a conversation of are we even what other groups have difficulty with pronoun use and are we actually using evidence based approaches that are effective to teach pronouns because you know are we looking at person case feature of the pronouns? Are we grouping the pronouns or are we just teaching I, 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 and then you, 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 like it became more common. So then they decided their, their whole focus shifted to, okay, we really want to survey speech language pathologists and find out how they approach teaching how to use pronouns. And also we want to sort of find out from autistic individuals what their understanding of pronouns is, because there are also these, I think there's Z pronouns as well that are more prevalent among autistic individuals. We also know that autistic individuals in terms of trans and non-binary, there are a higher percentage among the autistic population than among the neurotypical population. And so there's a whole bunch of things that go into pronouns. It's not just a matter of this linguistic thing that we have to teach. Mm -hmm. Well, great research. So goals, parents' perspective, multicultural perspective, pronouns. Was there a fourth one? Yes. The last one are a group of students that are looking at school-based programs, and they're looking at the number of students that are in inclusion classrooms versus self-contained classrooms and how their goals are being addressed, whether their goals are masking goals, whether what is the difference between the two settings in terms of the neurodiversity approach? Oh, that's very interesting. Let's take a masking goal and turn it around into a neurodiverse goal. So a masking goal might be to, for the example that we used earlier, flapping of the arms. Right. So the masking goal would be, you know, we'll not flap the arms or, or we'll only flap the arms, you know, X amount of times. Right. So, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of making that a goal before, you know, my issue with making that a goal at all is that the child is flapping for a regulatory reason that is helping them, like I said before, as a coping mechanism or a self-regulatory mechanism. So to tell them not to do that is really 
impeding that self-regulatory system. So we get rid of the masking goal and replace it with a self-regulation goal? Yeah. I mean, maybe the child, if we realize and we find out that the flapping is happening because they're overwhelmed or they're stressed out or they need to have a break, then the goal then becomes advocating for themselves to take a break and not to extinguish the flapping. The flapping is fine, but maybe along with that is some indication, and maybe it's not a verbal indication, but some indication, even if the flapping is just the flapping, but the child learns that they need to do it like in front of a certain person so that that person knows they need to take a break. So that there is, that that's just sort of coupled with something that will have a positive outcome for them. And not that it just extinguished because that is not going to help the child at all. Which is the whole perspective of neurodiversity, looking at what the positive outcome is. And the the positive outcome is self-regulating. So he or she or they can do whatever it is that they want to do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, you know, other masking goals, like we talked before about the trains, right? You know, Mm -hmm. if you, um, if the goal is like to expand vocabulary and you feel like you can't expand the vocabulary because all they want to talk about is trains, well, maybe let's use the trains and let's add vocabulary. Maybe I want to introduce animals. Well, I'm going to have different animals ride the train every day and I'm going to put the animals on the train. I'm going to use that train as my springboard to teach new vocabulary words. I'm not going to take the train away because all they want to talk about is the train. Let's talk about the train, but let's just talk about the train in terms of adding some other new things into it. So I think, you know, kind of approaches like that, that would be another example. And I also just wanted to, I don't know how much we've talked about eye contact goals, but I think it's so important to talk about eye contact goals because those are written by in so many treatment plans and IEPs that the child will maintain eye contact for X amount of time. And the newer research that has come out actually shows that for many autistic people, when they are, you know, we ask them and we include them in our research, they say that looking others in the eye is uncomfortable or stressful for them. And some actually have even said that it, quote, quote, it burns, unquote, all of which points to a neurological cause potentially for not maintaining eye contact. I what I had a child with ADHD tell me once that once she, she discovered her diagnosis a little later, and this was a teenager with ADHD, a teenage girl with ADHD. And of course, girls with ADHD get diagnosed so much later and often they're overlooked. The diagnosis is missed. And so she said to me, you know, I didn't realize until other people said it, that this also happens to them, that the burning that I felt in my eyes when I looked at someone and which also happened with certain kinds of lights and everything that, that, that wasn't normal. Like I thought everybody was felt like that. And so, you know, so we write these goals that are not necessarily, we may actually be doing much more harm than good. So I think that eye contact goal is that one is the one that I think based on, you know, the the presentations we've given and the questions we get asked, it's the hardest one to get people to just let go of. Like, you don't need someone to be looking at you in the eyes to show you that they are listening. I mean, we all have men in our lives who rarely look at us (laughs) when we talk. And when we say, well, why aren't you looking? You know, they'll say, well, I'm, I hear you. Like I can, you want me to tell you exactly what you just said. So I think like, you know, I don't know why that one is so hard for people to let go of. And I think it's one of the most ableist goals, actually, you know. I see your perspective. I, I really understand where you're coming from with that. And I'm, I'm thinking back to different clients that I've worked with and that has been a goal. I so appreciate you educating us on this and sharing the research. It's really important that we understand the perspective of people with autism and other neurodiversities. So I think this NeuroAllies program is really helping us all have a paradigm shift. So I know we just have another minute or so left, but tell us, so you've started it. This is the second year. And I found out about your program because I read an article about it in the ASHA Leader. Congratulations on that. 
since you've started it and either from other SLPs or other organizations, what kind of feedback and interest have you had and, and what future direct what do you see the future direction of this program or other programs like it? I think the feedback has mm-hmm. been incredibly positive. We've been contacted by a number of SLPs in different venues, SLPs from public schools, SLPs from private practice, just a number. Uh, you you know, I mean, uh, you know, from all over the country, country in fact, yeah. you know, larger organizations where they, you know, it's interprofessional practice where they work with, you know, all kinds of individuals with varying needs. You know, I think, you know, a book chapter invitation, webinars, lots and lots of different things. I mean, some of them we've had to turn down because honestly, I wish, you know, sometimes we say to each other, gosh, if we could just make our full-time income doing this, that'd be really <laughs> fun. But like we actually have this other job that we love, but that's yes. very demanding. So we can't, you know, we had to turn down some of these invitations. But I think the most exciting one has come from the New Jersey Center, the New Jersey Autism Center of Excellence, because they are the ones who you know, gave us this grant to start this program. So for them to come back and say to us, you know, a couple years later, wow, this is not even a couple years, like a year, less than a year later, they read the Jen from NJA, you know, sent an email. I read the Asha Leader article. This is amazing. And, you know, can you do a webinar for us? And can you work with us to spread the word among school-based SLPs? I think for me, that was really the one that really was heartwarming because they are the New Jersey Center of Autism Excellence. And they're sort of asking us, you know, we would love for you to um, collaborate with us. And I think for me, one of the most exciting things is our students going out into the world and having conversations that people haven't been having before. And to know that our students are the ones that are starting these conversations, they're going out to their externships and having conversations with their supervisors Mm -hmm. and with colleagues at externship sites. And it's really exciting for me to know that our students are kind of out there. Pioneers. Yeah, they are. They're really kind of pioneers. And that to me is, is super exciting. I'm excited for them because they are so excited to kind of be bringing this information to people in a new way. I think it's really great. And they're doing it in such a mature, professional Professional way, way, having conversations that are just... They're hard to have. They're hard for us who have been in the field for years. They're hard conversations Mm -hmm. to have. And they're navigating it, and they're navigating it really well. And we're just really proud of them. Well, that is excellent. They are hard conversations because it's hard for us as therapists to say, hey, I might have not done something as well as I could have. And And you know, instead of taking that approach and saying that, I think the better approach is to say, hey, we learned, we know more now than we knew then. Yes. There's new information. And mm-hmm. as a therapist, I need to incorporate this new information into what I'm doing because we did the best we could with the information that we had yeah. at the time. And now we have some new information. So mm-hmm. let's go with it, you know? Yeah. So true. So true. Well, I love that positive perspective. And We appreciate both of you being here today. Before we go, is there anything else that you want to add? And can you let people know how they would get in contact with you at Kane University to learn more about NeuroAllies? Or is there a NeuroAllies website? Or is it, how could they get more information? We do have sort of on our, sorry, let me just go look it up. It's part of the MASLP website. But yeah, there is a website. I can certainly send you the link. And the other thing is probably email, I think for me, is the best way. So Myself as well. Yeah, mnamazi at kane.edu. And I'm Jay Kasha, so J-C-A-S-C-I-A at kane.edu. Thank you. And how do you spell Kane again? (laughs) K-E-A-N. Thank you. (laughs) I know that, but I want our listeners to know that. So, okay. I just wanted to say, I wanted to just give credit to our students since this was about, this episode was about the NeuroAllies program. I want to make sure we give credit to our students who came up with, one of them came up with the name NeuroAllies. Oh, wow. Her first name to keep our identity, you know, as confidential as possible. Bridget came up with the, the name and then we put it to a vote. We came up with a whole bunch of different names and then it was pretty unanimous that that we went with uh, the students in the first cohort, came up with the name and they liked Neuro Allies. 
And then another one of our students, Sydney, actually created the logo. So we have actually a wonderful brochure. And I can send you the digital version of that, which talks about That would be great. And then we can include it with the handout and resources for the course on speechtherapypd.com. Yes. Excellent. Well, it's so great to have things come from the students. Most of those ideas are the best ideas. Yes, absolutely. So, well, thank you so much. Your program is really a model for us all, and it it expands the concept of neurodiversity and such an important contribution to the field of speech-language pathology. So thank you for sharing this information. And I know you get a lot of requests to speak, so I really appreciate both of you not only doing one, but two episodes for us. And I just want to say thank you, and I do hope that you'll come back. I think you're scheduled for a webinar for speechtherapypd.com or talking about it possibly yeah so in in may i uh, 2022 yes we're doing a webinar i think it's part of the autism conference in may yes that's right yep excellent all right well we'll look out for that so thank you very much have a great day thank Thank you so much thank you you. take care bye-bye thanks bye-bye thanks for joining us here at keys for slps providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.